Hey everyone, this is Cabane the Christian. What I want to do today is to complete the series that I started about a month and a half ago on the central narrative arc of Christianity, that is arguing that the central narrative arc is not redemption or salvation from sin, but rather is the glorification of creation through the human family. And so by glorification, what I mean is in the sense that the letter to the Hebrews means the perfection of the world. Hebrews says that Jesus was perfected through suffering in his obedience. Now, it doesn't mean that he was flawed in any way, but that according to the potentials intrinsic to his human nature, all of those potentials were actualized by the will and perfect faithfulness according to his divine sonship. Before we get into the meat of that video, of this uh, video today, I want to mention again for those who are not patrons, and thank you so much to all who are. I cannot express to you how helpful it is. If you are not a patron, I would ask that if you're in a financially good situation, to consider becoming a patron at one of the three tiers. That's five dollars, ten dollars, or twenty dollars. Now, at ten dollars and up, you will get access to all exclusive content, including content in the future that will be half paywall. I want to limit the amount of content that is half paywalled, um, and it looks like I will be able to do that. Uh, but the reason that I'm setting this up and everything is because to produce this amount of content, it actually does require that I get a certain amount of money from making these YouTube videos so that I can meet my financial obligations. So I'm hoping to do that while paywalling as little content as possible, and I hope to eventually reduce the amount of ads uh, in the future. Uh, today, I have uploaded, by the time this video will be live, I have uploaded a book review of N.T. Wright's book, Justification. And we're going to be talking about what N.T. Wright means by justification and how compatible this is or not with both the historic Protestant doctrine and the Orthodox interpretation of the doctrine of justification. So that will be available for all patrons at the $10 and up tier. A few people have asked me to create parallel YouTube memberships, and so I am going to be doing that. However, the bottom tier is not going to be available on YouTube, and the second and third tier will be slightly more expensive because YouTube takes a higher proportion of the content, and it doesn't let me make exclusive content just for certain tiers. So if for some reason you don't like pa uh, Patreon as a platform, you will be able to do YouTube memberships, but if I were you, I would just subscribe through Patreon if that is indeed your purpose. And finally, the top tier that is $20 a month on Patreon does give you a guaranteed one hour uh, conversation with me every month if you reach out to me. So you do have to reach out to me um, so that we can set that up and set up a time for everything. And it's uh, not just one hour, it's at least one hour. And of course, you're not going to be charged uh, if it goes longer than that. And I'm not saying that I'm only talking with patrons, just that because of the number of people that do want to have these discussions, I have to have some way to prioritize. And right now, the best way to do that in part is through the patronage system. Okay, so with all of that said, let's get into the subject of today's video. And there is some overlap, by the way, with the other series, which I started on the identity of the serpent, whether the serpent is indeed the devil and the devil's presence in the Old Testament. So,
let's get into the precise nature of what happened in the Garden of Eden, what happened in Genesis 2-3. to Now, in some respects here, I'm going to be speaking on my own behalf. Of course, the church teaches, according to its tradition, that the identity of the serpent in Genesis 3 is the devil. But the, particular, the particulars of this or that interpretive move I'm making are not uh, particulars which are bound dogmatically as a matter of orthodox tradition. So I just want to make that clear um, as we begin. The theology is that of the orthodox tradition. The particulars of how we get there, well, there's some interpretive freedom here. So I don't want to claim an authority which is not mine to claim. Oh, and just as a, as a, as a matter of a uh, as a little bit of a footnote, I've made a personal rule for myself. I'm not starting any more series until I finish the ones I already have open. So this is something I'm kind of learning as I go. Uh, please keep me in your prayers. And I want to thank everyone for your patience because nobody has complained to me. And I'm really surprised because I think that there's some basis for it. Okay, so the Nakash. Who is the Nakash? Now, we talked about in my video on the identity of the serpent, the meaning of this word Nakash. Now, Nakash in the Hebrew language can be translated as a noun, and it can mean serpent. But as we pointed out, so also can the word seraph. Seraph also refers to a serpent. And we see here that there is some conceptual breadth to these words that includes both serpents in the sense of the animal and the angelic or heavenly beings who are created as part of the celestial commonwealth. When God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, he creates all of the heavenly hosts. They're complete, they're mature, they don't develop or multiply over time like the human family does, and then the earth is shaped and molded and reconstructed so as to mirror the perfection of its heavenly model. We can see that in those passages like Psalm 104, which literally recapitulate the days of creation and include the angelic hosts in that first creation day. Paul also, Colossians 1.15, Christ is he who rules over the heavens and the earth, and in heavens Paul includes the thrones, the dominions, the powers, etc., etc. Now, the Nakash as it is uh, a noun, it's a serpent, just like seraph, but as an adjective, it can be rendered bright, just like seraph, as an adjective, can be rendered burning. So we have the idea of celestial brightness and in both Isaiah uh, 14 and in the book of Ezekiel, we have references to this same figure and references to his brightness are front and center. In Isaiah 14, he is the day star, the sun of the morning. And in Job 41, we meet Leviathan, who in Isaiah 27 is called the serpent, the Nakash. And Leviathan is said to have eyes like the dawn, just like in Isaiah 14. He uh, is the son of the dawn. So who exactly is this figure, the Nakash? In order to understand that, we have to look, of course, at the context. What's going on in Genesis 2 is God is bringing man to his, uh, through his developmental trajectory. So as we mentioned before, what makes the earth ontologically distinct from that category of being that we call the heavens is that earth develops through time. It is perfected by participation to increasing degrees in the glory of God, which after all is its archetype. Earth was created as an impression or an imprint of that archetype, which exists eternally in the mind of God. This is the doctrine of the Logi, uh, 
all of these archetypes are summed up in the person of the Son, which is why he's called the Logos of God, and why the creation is brought to its perfection by the incarnation, where the archetype joins itself to that which is imprinted on the uh, clay of contingency, so to speak. Now, in both the scripture and tradition, the word goodness is often used to denote this kind of relationship between God and his creatures. Dionysius the Areopagite says, for example, that all of the processions of God are signified by the word goodness because we measure a thing's goodness according to its degree of correspondence with its archetype. So we say a computer is a good computer. This is analogical um, uh, language, by the way. We say a computer is a good computer if it accurately reflects that which was in the mind of its designer and thus fulfills the purpose for which it was created. Now, we speak of moral goodness when a thing's fulfillment of that end when a thing's realization of what Aristotle would call its final cause lies within the capacity of its own will. So if we take a, a, a subatomic particle, it fulfills its final cause, it realizes its nature, and thus, in one sense, is a good particle, it actuates its nature. And it does so by participation in God. But we do not say that it is morally good because it is not a matter of moral freedom for it to reject the fulfillment of its nature. Man, by contrast, is given free will, which is understood in the Orthodox tradition in a libertarian sense. And all libertarian freedom means is that given a certain set of circumstances, and given a creature being what it is, everything being exactly as it is, there are multiple possibilities. And the determination of which of these possibilities is going to be realized and made actual lies within the power of the creature's will. So man has free will because he can choose whether to realize A, B, C, or D. And that is why we say that certain things are not just good in this broader sense, in the sense that it reflects the uh, archetype which exists in the Logos of God, but it's good in the moral sense because a person has realized that archetype when they were free to do otherwise. I shouldn't say that this is what makes a thing morally good. But rather, I should say that this is what creates the possibility for moral evil, because there are animals which don't realize the potentials of their nature because of the fall. But it is not a moral evil, even though analogically speaking, it is evil. The moral evil is attributable to man. God cannot do evil. He always realizes all of his perfections, and yet God is free in the libertarian sense because he is free to realize this or that good. There are an infinite plenitude of goodnesses, an infinite plenitude of ways in which a good creation could be made, and God is free to realize any one of those or indeed to not create the world at all. And this is one of the ways in which man images and expresses the qualities which make God God because man as a partner in God's creative work, is free to realize the goodness of God in a multiplicity of different ways. 
So goodness signifies God's relationship to the creation as its archetype. The creation is a theater for the declaration of God's own glory. We see this, for example, in Exodus 32 to 34, which we're going to talk about a little more uh, in just a few moments. In Exodus 32 to 34, uh, Israel rebels against God at the golden calf. Moses has to go up and make intercession for them. And God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. So we see here the conjunction of the theology of goodness and the theology of the name. Likewise, in Genesis 1, throughout the creation days, we see that God creates the world according to its particular diversity. He gives them names, that is, having created them. He apprehends the depths of their nature, the mode in which they reflect himself. And then he gives them a name which is appropriate to that particular nature. And that naming is actually part of the creation's self-realization as the creation. Why? Because God being God is a trinity of divine persons. And his self-disclosure in that trinity is part of his divine quality. And self-disclosure occurs through language, through names. So names realize the existence of the creation as an interwoven web of communion, not only between God and the world, but between the world and the world. It's one of those remarkable things we see about the world and its declaration of God uh, in Trinity. So God gives things their names and then he calls them good because goodness sums up that name. He gives the, he calls the uh, the light day, the darkness night, he sees that the light is good. But we see something peculiar in Genesis chapter 1, and that is on the second day of creation, when he separates the waters above from the waters below, he does not call that uh, the waters above good. Now, the waters above are referred to throughout the Psalms. They are the boundary which separates our material cosmos from God's heavenly throne room. So this, this, I don't want to get too deep into the cosmological implications of this because this is what James Jordan would call the deep weird. But the psalmist refers to the waters above the heavens. The heavens are that space in which the sun, moon, and stars are all placed. Okay, And then above that, there are waters. And then beyond that, there's what we call the heaven of heavens, the highest heaven. And that's where the heavenly host is. That's where God uh, is. And there's obviously a complicated relationship here between the way in which the heaven of heavens actually makes itself known in our world and the way in which the heaven of heavens is actually beyond our world, beyond this uh, boundary, uh, this sea of crystal. But we see it in Revelation 4 to 5, where Jesus the Messiah ascends to the heaven of heavens. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, that is the Son of Man, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. In the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, he takes the saints up with him so that they sit and rule on thrones in the heaven of heavens. I think that's one of the bases for our doctrine of the invocation and the power of the saints in the Orthodox and Catholic uh, traditions. Um, and we see that thus that the firmament um, is the boundary point which separates these two realms of existence. In Revelation 4 to 5 and Revelation 20, it's called the sea. 
And we read something very important in Revelation chapter 20, which is that after the second coming with the bodily resurrection, there is no more sea. We read that death and Hades give up all the dead who are in them, and the sea gives up all the de dead which are in it. Well, why is the sea distinguished from death and Hades? Because the sea here is the sea of crystal. It's the heavenly sea on which the saints are reigning, and those who live and believe in me shall never die. They, ha they are those who inherit the first resurrection. Uh, Revelation 14, blessed are those uh, who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. So that the sea in Revelation chapter 20 is the sea above, is the sea of crystal. And when it's removed, it's removed because heaven and earth are fully bound up and completely mutually interior to one another. That's a very important point to keep in mind. We see it anticipated in the story of the flood. Now in the story of the flood, we have a typological representation of the whole history of creation. The waters above come and baptize the whole creation. And when this occurs, the ark, which is a representation of the glorified church, um, ascends to the top of the holy mountain and attains sabbatical rest through the work of Noah. We read that there is a covering that is placed on top of the ark, or a kippah. That covering represents the covering of the creation as a whole, and at the end of the flood, Noah removes that covering, which anticipates the removal of the waters above when heaven and earth are completely interior to one another, such that there is no more separation between the two. This is the largest instantiation of this pattern of division and reunification unto glorification. There is always a division in two, and then a union of these two things back together, but in a new and greater way. When Adam is given a bride, he is put into a deep sleep, he is then divided in two, and then he becomes again one flesh, but this time with a bride, he is made more glorious. That's why in their becoming one flesh, Adam is called for the first time, not Adam or dirtbag, as James Jordan puts it, but ish, which is a pun on the Hebrew word for fire or Esh. So man becomes fiery in his union with woman. Woman is the glory of man because woman is the glorifier of man. And this is the point that I'm making with respect to the serpent or the Nachash. If you understand that goodness has this connotation, the purpose of the creation and the purpose of man's history in the creation is to be increased in its participation in divine goodness, thereby becoming more fully divine and becoming in that very way more fully itself. Man grows and multiplies to more and more fully reflect the image of God. And man, in the sense that man is created after the image of God, is not an individual human being, but rather is the human family. He made them male and female and called them man. Man signifies the name for the human family writ large. And the way in which man becomes truly man is in the church in whom the manifold wisdom of God is declared to the powers and the principalities. And so in Genesis 2, God takes from the, 
God takes dust, he unites it with his spirit, the breath of life, the spirit of life. He makes man, and then he begins the process of developing man into the fullness of his heavenly prototype. That's the basis for this language in 1 Corinthians 15 of the man of dust and the man of heaven. Man is called the generations of the heavens and the earth, as we discussed earlier, and man is thus a microcosm of the whole uh, cosmic reality of both parts of that reality, and he is the instrument through which heaven and earth are made interior to one another, which we see at the end of, book of, of the book of Revelation, as we just discussed. And so God begins this process by tutoring man. He brings man the animals, and man looks at the animals, and Adam analyzes them. He apprehends their natures, that is, the way in which they reflect God, and he thus gives them an appropriate name. Language both reflects and expresses man's existence as the image of God, and it deepens man's participation in that image, thus perfecting him into the likeness of God. Now, I think the Hebrew words which are translated image and likeness uh, do not have a one-to-one -one correspondence to the theology of image and likeness, but I do think it's the prepositions which are used uh, in conjunction with those Hebrew words, uh, which uh, correspond to and provide the basis for the distinction theologically between image and likeness. Uh, I have an article on that if anyone is, is interested. So man studies the animals and he learns something about God, about the creation, and about himself. If we look at the analogy between the animals coming to Adam on Mount Eden, because there's a river which flows downwards and it's on a mountain, Ezekiel uh, also in his description of Eden describes it as happening on a mountain. And we look at the analogy to the animals coming to Noah, and Noah eventually is exalted to the top of a holy mountain, we see that the animals probably came to Adam in pairs which is why Adam learned something about himself, which is that in order to realize his existence as a declaration of God's character, communion with one who is of like nature with him must be that an instrument for that realization. And thus, it is not good for man to be alone. This phrase, not good, looks back to the repeated declarations that God saw that it was good throughout Genesis 1. In Adam's apprehension that it was not good for himself to be alone, and in his apprehension of the reality that that loneliness would be remedied by one of like nature, Adam is learning how to become a partner in God's creative work. Think about the way that we use the language of good and not good, good, even in the English language. We use the language of goodness in the sense of a thing's correspondence to the end for which we are working out a particular thing. If we are uh, trying to build a house, for example, we might say, oh, this or that tool, oh, that's not good for, for, for this purpose. Or uh, we need this, uh, this kind of wood would be good. So we see that this analogical use of the language of goodness is not something which is uniquely theological. It's something which already exists in the way that we speak, and we just have to notice it, point it out, and draw out its implications. 
So Adam, in learning about the natures of the animals, of the various creatures which God has put into the world, is learning something about how to become a partner with God in his creative work. He's learning something about how to be more and more truly himself. And so we read that for Adam, there was not found a help, a helper fit for him. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept. He took one of his ribs or his side and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, this is the very language that was used for God's bringing the animals to Adam. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this language of bone and flesh is not actually language which has its significance in referring to the bridal relationship which the two of them have. Instead, the language of bone and flesh it has its significance in its expression of the likeness which the two of them share. And in the scriptures, the way that likeness is expressed, is expressed is in the language of brotherhood and sisterhood. So we read throughout the Bible, there is the repeated emphasis on the concept of the sister bride. We read in the Song of Songs, the uh, King Solomon repeatedly calls his Egyptian bride, my sister, my bride, because prior to her being brought into the marriage covenant, she is adopted into his household. I think this is probably the ideological and theological basis for a bride taking on the family name of her husband, because the precondition for marriage to another woman is a likeness, a consubstantiality. The two share the same nature, therefore they can be joined. There must be a likeness and a distinction. They are like in that they share the same nature, but they are unlike in that one is male and the other is female. Bone of my bones, well, the word, Hebrew word for bone also can be rendered self. This at last is self of myself. That is why I think, for example, it was important that at the crucifixion of Jesus, none of his bones be broken because that reflected, expressed, and realized the absolute integrity of the incarnation which persisted through the passion of our Lord. Only because the divine Son, having appropriated to himself human nature, remained absolutely and totally united, could he facilitate the unification of man with God, of man with man, and the reconciliation of man with the world. So this process is a process by which God is beginning the journey of man from goodness to very goodness, or goodness to perfection. And because man is a microcosm of the world, man sums up the world's energies, the world's logi in himself. In his assimilation of those logi, of those energies, of those ideas to his own mind, he is made able to continue to create the world, to glorify it, to perfect it. We see thus that God creates Adam before he plants the Garden of Eden. Adam is created and then he watches God planting the garden because this is what Adam is going to repeat and develop. Thus we see in Genesis 9 when Noah, who is a glorified Adam, an Adam who is faithful, when Noah comes off the ark, what does he do? He plants a vineyard. And from that vineyard, he draws wine. Wine is the sign of sabbatical rest. For that reason, Noah rests in his tent. And where God delivered the curses in Genesis chapter 3, it is Noah who delivers blessings and curses in Genesis chapter 9. So this is the process which has been going on. 
This is what it fundamentally means to have the knowledge of good and evil. It is the knowledge of all things. It is the knowledge of the goodnesses which are inherent in all creatures so that one can exercise one's calling as a king and faithfully manage and exercise dominion over the creation. To discern between good and evil, we see it in 1 Kings chapter 3. It means uh, to reign as a king. That is signified by uh, clothes. One is given special clothes uh, uh, representing one's unique authority. See, after the fall, Adam and Eve are given garments. I talked about that more in my video explaining the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to which I am deeply indebted to James B. Jordan. So, what does the serpent have to do with any of this? Well, the serpent is the chief tutor of mankind. One way to see this is look at the wordplay that is made between the language of nakedness and shrewdness or craftiness or wisdom. If you look at the spelling, for example, of the word naked in Genesis 2.25, it is not its typical spelling. The spelling is actually atypical to make it look and sound more like the word which is translated crafty or wise or shrewd. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. This is very important because this wisdom, this craftiness, is that quality which enables a person or a thing to exercise dominion and rule over the creation. Solomon, for example, is quite wise. And we see that the uh, conceptual nature of this wisdom does overlap with what we would consider to be shrewd or crafty. Solomon, after a fashion, does trick the two women who bring to him the baby and dispute uh, whose uh, child the baby is. Solomon presents uh, his judgment as if he is going to do one thing, whereas he does not, in fact, intend to do that. Uh, Rahab deceives the Canaanites. There is a tradition in some uh, Christian exegesis to say that, well, uh, this deception, they, they, should, they shouldn't have uh, done this deception. They could have done a better way. There's simply no scriptural evidence for that. There is a difference between the larger category of deception, some of which is good and some of which is bad, and the more restricted category of lying, which is always wrong. It's a very important point to make because deception is something which many um, people righteously do throughout the scriptures. In fact, God, he sends a lying spirit into the mouths of all of his, uh, of all the false prophets. So this is something we have to engage with instead of just waving off in the scriptures. Um, so the language of nakedness and the language of wisdom are a play upon each other. Okay. So the opposite of nakedness is obviously being clothed. Look at the language, look at the, uh, use of clothing throughout the book of Genesis in particular. Joseph is given a robe of many colors. Um, I do think it, it probably does refer to many colors. I think the translators of the Septuagint probably knew what they were doing. Um, and I think there's some archaeological evidence uh, uh, that Joseph had a robe of many colors. Uh, but Pharaoh gives Joseph 
a special garment of rule and authority. Uh, Noah, when Ham attempts to overthrow his father's authority, as Adam had tried to overthrow in a less grave and serious way his divine father's authority, he attempts to expose his father's nakedness. This anticipates later in the scriptures, or later in the book of Genesis, when uh, Jacob's son exposes his nakedness in the language of Leviticus by sleeping with one of Jacob's wives. Absalom does the same thing to King David later in the Bible, and Leviticus refers to the sin of sleeping with your father's wife, whether she's your mother or not, as exposing your father's nakedness. We'll talk about this in relation to Genesis 9 another time, perhaps. Um, but we see consistently that clothing is a way of signifying rule and authority. Why is that the case? Well, we read that the priests are clothed in garments of glory and beauty. And I want you to pay attention to that language of glory because of the way that is, it is used in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we read about the uh, 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 the glory of Christ. Uh, let's start in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like the body of his glory by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So God rules the world. How? Through his energies, through his operations, his activities. Why? Because what does it mean to rule the world? Well, to rule the world means that you have the capacity to determine the way that things are going to be. Pay attention to that little phrase, to be. What is the being of a thing? What is it that determines the mode in which a thing exists? Well, it's its mode of participation in the divine archetype of its existence, which are its activities, its energies. A way of expressing the revelation of those energies is the revelation of the divine glory. So he will transform our lowly body to be like the body of his glory, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So these garments of glory are simultaneously the garments of rule and authority because it is by participation in the glory of God that we are enabled to become true and just rulers over the creation. So the fact that the serpent is called shrewd and the fact that this a word for shrewd is a play on nakedness, indicates that the serpent is the one who presently has authority over the creation. How do we explain this? Well, Papias says that there was an administration at the beginning which was given to angels. Papias is not talking out of his butt here. Papias is uh, uh, speaking on the basis of theology like that is presented in the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Paul in Hebrews quoting Psalm 8, for a little while man was made lower than the angels, but now in Christ is crowned with glory and honor. Likewise in Galatians, the Torah was given through angels. It's referring there to a passage in Deuteronomy 33, where at Sinai, God came with all of his holy ones or all of his saints. And it's referring there to the members of his council, which at that point were the angels. The members of the divine council in the Old Testament were the angelic hosts, Job 1 to 2. The sons of God refers to the angelic hosts, a particular kind of angelic um, uh, uh, host, but the angelic hosts nevertheless. James Jordan has made the analogy between uh, the drill sergeants uh, in the military who have authority over the officers in training until the officers are prepared to exercise that authority. And during the uh, uh, their training, they may be very 
uh, sharp and harsh, but at the end of the day, their purpose is to salute those who will be given authority, uh, not only over others, but over those who had trained them. So we read in 1 Corinthians that we will judge angels. We have authority over angels. And the chief of the heavenly hosts, the most glorious and splendid of them, was that figure who later became the devil. So this is who the Nachash, I believe, fundamentally is. And think about in this in in this context. We've just talked about what glory is. We've just talked about how it relates to wisdom and, and authority and rule. Uh, Nachash, when you understand all of that, connects very closely with that. It is bright one. Uh, the Nachash is the tutor of mankind. So, how does he tutor mankind? Well, the enemy at the end of the day, will fulfill God's purpose. God always fulfills his purpose, with or without our cooperation. And in fact, he will always fulfill our, his purpose through us. If we cooperate, it will be good for us. If we don't cooperate, it will be bad for us. But we're going to fulfill his purpose one way or the other. And he does the same through the devil. I, have, I made a video on Job where I've talked about this. At the beginning of the book of Job, we have the figure called Satan the Accuser. He, we have the heavenly council, and Satan is called the accuser here because the heavenly council is the heavenly court, so he's given his title appropriate to that kind of conceptual context. And what he does is uh, he is given divine permission to attack Job. And what this does for Job is it grows him up. Job, at the beginning of the book, is not a member of God's counsel. He's excluded from its proceedings. He wonders why God is doing the things that he's doing. At the end of the book, Job is called a, uh, Job is a member of that counsel. Job makes intercession for his three counselors who had attempted to foment a coup against him. See my video on Job for more information about this. And making intercession that is effective for others is something that prophets do. Genesis chapter 20, we're told Abraham's the prophet and he will pray for you, God says to Abimelech. To be a prophet is to have the spirit dwelling in you, the spirit who rules and realizes all things, the spirit who dwells in us so that we become an instrument for that divine rule, for that divine activity and operation. And he who has the spirit dwelling in him, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, well, he in this sense, as a prophet and a member of the divine council. The Lord does nothing without consulting his servants, the prophets, it said in the scriptures. And thus, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 18 and 19, God says, Shall I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Because Abraham, at this point in his mission, has become a prophet. I would say his prophetic calling occurs in Genesis chapter 15. That's a case which has been made uh, by Peter Lightheart uh, elsewhere. And so, in Job, the process whereby he moves to glory... He becomes more and more glorious. He has authority over twice the amount of stuff at the end of the book than he did at the beginning. He is faithful in suffering and therefore his kingdom is doubled as opposed to Solomon who is unfaithful in the midst of blessing and therefore his kingdom is halved. I think Solomon wrote the book. Uh, we see that Leviathan who corresponds in the literary structure of the book to Satan at the beginning of the book. Leviathan is being led around by the nose with a hook from God. So God utilizes the serpent, the dragon, to fulfill his purpose of maturing the human family, whether or not Leviathan, whether or not the devil, the dragon, the serpent likes it. Uh, so he is instrumental 
for the maturation, for the perfection of humanity in humanity's destiny, whether he likes it or not. But it's, a, it's an interesting question to ask. In Genesis 3, was the serpent, uh, uh, at the beginning of this, was he already a rebel? Now, it's possible he was. And again, I'm speaking on my own behalf here. I'm not speaking on behalf of the church. There are multiple interpretations which are compatible with the teaching of the church. This isn't a major issue. But uh, personally, I find it most persuasive to suggest that the actual fall of the serpent here, uh, the actual fall of the devil, is narrated here. There are a few reasons for this. Uh, some people may raise Isaiah 14 as the narrative of the fall of the devil. I don't think that's the case. Isaiah 14 does speak of something in uh, the past tense, but the reason it does so, in my opinion, is because it's a prophetic perfect. In the chiastic structure of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 14 corresponds to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we have the suffering servant who humbles himself in his faithfulness, even to death, even to the grave, and is therefore exalted above all things so that he might see his seed and prolong his days. Well, in Isaiah 14, we have the opposite. We've got the king of Babylon who exalts himself above all things, and because of that, he is humbled to the grave so that his seed is cut off. That language of the serpent seed being cut off is used in the oracles against the nations. The king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, I think, is the devil because the word Babylon is the same as Babel. And the king of Babel, the uh, authoritative ruler of that system, is the devil. Okay, So Babel is the prototypical named representation of the city of evil. And the one who rules over that is the devil. Okay, so that, it's not referring, in my opinion, to a specific uh, king of Babylon. I think this is a way of talking about this enemy figure, which we see throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And so if we understand Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 14 to both be chiastically linked and be written in the prophetic perfect, that is, the prophecy is so certain to be fulfilled, which is a major theme in Isaiah 40 to 55, it's so sure to be fulfilled because it's God who's speaking the prophecy that it's written as if it had already happened. Well, then the best way to read this text is to see it happening at the same time. That is, the king of Babylon, the serpent, the dragon, the enemy, he is put in the grave in Sheol. He's cast out of the heavenly court through the work of the suffering servant. So the reason that I would say that Genesis 3 probably records the fall of the serpent, the fall of the devil, and I'm going to give you the moment that I think he specifically fell here, uh, is um, because at the end of Genesis 1, we're told that all things were very good. It does not seem that there was any corruption which had entered into God's creation. And Genesis 1 does indeed include the creation of the angelic hosts. Genesis 1-1 speaks of the creation of the heavens and the earth. This is not the same thing as the heavens which are created in uh, uh, on the second day when God separates the waters above from the waters below uh, and names the space between them heaven. The naming of that space in between them as heaven is a representation of the symbolic relationship that the stellar or celestial heavens, the visible heavens, have with the heaven of heavens, which is why angels are spoken of in the language of stars uh, uh, and such. Uh, so the scriptures repeatedly speak of heaven and the heaven of heavens, heaven and highest heaven. Solomon says, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. And Psalm 104, as I mentioned, uh, 
goes day by day through the creation week of Genesis 1. And on the first day of creation, it refers to the creation of the heavenly host. It refers to the ministers, the spirits who are a flame of fire. Paul does the same thing in Colossians and there are other places. There's a place in Ezra and Nehemiah which says this, so on and so forth. So angels are definitely included within this overarching kind of category of creation and there does not appear to be any imperfection in it at the end of the creation week. That's at the end of the sixth day. If you want to look at the chronology of uh, Genesis 2 to 3 in relation to Genesis chapter 1, then my argument, and again, I'm speaking on my own behalf here, um, this is hardly something which is essential to any given theological uh, system, but I would suggest to you that the fall of Adam occurs on the Sabbath. Um, again, uh, I've gotten a lot of insight from James Jordan here. Uh, I think the chronology of Genesis 3 Clearly, man and woman are both created on the sixth day, and there, there are references in Genesis 2 to 3 to Genesis 1, so it is not as if these are two separate texts. So the idea that these are two creation stories is just baloney. You will not understand everything that God wants you to understand in Genesis 2 to 3 if you think that this was written uh, without the expectation that you had already read Genesis 1. So Adam and Eve are created on the sixth day, and we have to remember that the uh, uh, Sabbath, the Sabbath day, begins in the evening. It's, there's evening and there was morning. So overnight, they attempt to make garments of fig leaves for themselves. And then on sabbatical morning, well, this is the day where God liturgically meets with his people. And it says that God, uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God coming in the garden in the spirit of the day. Sometimes it reads walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, I think that's really a misinterpretation of the text. As Meredith Klein points out, the language here is that of the day of the Lord, in the spirit of the day. Consider how when God comes in his glory in uh, the book of Exodus, the people draw back. They're afraid. Moses is afraid when God comes in his glory. And so likewise right here, uh, Adam and Eve are afraid. They jump back. They hide from him just as Moses and just as the people of Israel did. It's an incredibly loud, jarring noise. The spirit... That's what the word translated cool actually is. It's the spirit of the day. That is the day of the Lord, the day where God comes in his glory. He inspects his creation and he either says it is good or it is not good. Um, so with that in mind, uh, and I, I don't think the central point here really turns on this being the narrative of the devil's fall. But I think one reason that that's a useful reading is because we have the curse on the serpent in Genesis 3.14 and following. And the curse on the serpent, as we're going to talk about when we keep going through the video series on the identity of the serpent, how why he's definitely the devil. Uh, the curse on the serpent is a prophecy that is fulfilled in the same day and through the fulfillment of the prophecy of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent, and because his head is crushed into the ground, he is on his belly. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Okay, So he is put in the grave, he's put underground, where the only thing that he can eat is the dead, dust. We won't get all into that right now because it's uh, something I want to talk about and save for my video series on the uh, devil in the Old Testament. Um, but uh, let's... Go back to uh, Genesis 3, 1. The serpent is more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. So this doesn't actually include him within the category beasts of the field, though there are 
strong connections between the angelic hosts and the animals, which we're going to talk about when we get into the discussion of the identity of the serpent and the devil in the Old Testament. For now, just note uh, one aspect of this analogy, the four faces of the cherubim. Three, four, three of those four faces are animal faces. So there's a connection theologically and ideologically between the angels and the animals, which we have to take into account. The serpent is called crafty. He's called wise because he is the one who is holding the keys of the kingdom until man is prepared to be given authority. So this is one of the traditional understandings of why the devil rebelled. I was asked about this question um, by an astute commenter a few days ago. Why is it that the devil rebelled? Well, the traditional answer, at least part of the traditional answer, is he did not want to give up his authority to mankind. Uh, in training mankind to become wise, the essence of the delight that the angels have is in handing over the keys so that man will take uh, in actuality that role which they have been being prepared for since the beginning. But the enemy did not want that to happen. He wanted to keep that authority for himself. And as people, and as uh, I guess, don't want to, as uh, people, persons, creatures, as they always tend to do, uh, they project onto other people. We see how the serpent actually projects uh, his own worry onto God. God's holding back authority for himself, the devil says, when actually that's exactly what he's trying to do. Uh, he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So um, what's going on here? This is a way in which man is being increased in wisdom. And the way in which man is being instructed in wisdom is the serpent, whether he's doing so with the intention to grow mankind up in wisdom or whether he's already trying to begin his process of deception. I tend to the former interpretation, but I can see how you would go for the latter interpretation, um, is by asking Eve to repeat back what God had said. Now, let's remember, God gave his instruction to Adam before Eve had been created. The only instruction which Eve had heard directly was the instruction that was given at the end of Genesis chapter 1. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, God has created both uh, male and female. He says, I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is one of the ways in which we can see that God certainly did intend to eventually give man the ability to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just not yet. But before he gave that commandment or that um, gift to them both, he had told Adam that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the serpent asks Eve to repeat back this instruction to, uh, to him. Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And of course, that's not what he said. God said, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but as for the tree of knowledge, not yet. This is one of the ways in which instruction traditionally occurs. If you give your child a particular instruction, you say, okay, what did I say? Or you might say, did I say X? You might repeat it back to him wrongly and ask that he correct you. You look at uh, Exodus 32 to 34. You see, I've put that up on the slide here because it's a very important analogy. What does God do to Moses when Moses is learning the name of the Lord? 
this section of Exodus ends with the proclamation of God's divine goodness, the proclamation of the name of the Lord, and the radiance of divine glory from Moses' face. So Moses is growing up in the knowledge of the wisdom of God, and he does so through this method of instruction. Consider what God uh, says to Moses, after the golden calf, Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded for them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people, like the stiff neck of cows. Uh, now you become what you worship, in other words. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to destroy Israel, and I'm going to make a great nation from your seed. Doesn't that sound like a good deal? And essentially, Moses is being asked to object to that, because in that process of engagement, Moses grows up into a deeper knowledge of what the faithfulness of God embodied in his name actually entails. This is a intellectual analogy to the process of wrestling. A father wrestles his son, not with the intention to destroy him, but with the intention to make him strong. For that very reason, God wrestled Jacob in Genesis chapter uh, 32. The wrestling of Jacob in Genesis 32 explains the suffering which Jacob had been undergoing unjustly for his entire life. God was preparing Jacob to become glorious. He was maturing and growing him up, making him strong by making him fight. By the same token, God repeats, uh, God gives Moses an instruction which is not consistent with his name in order to provoke Moses to more deeply understand that which is consistent with his name. Job 38 does the same thing. God says to Job, gird up your loins. And then he gives him a series of analogies or parables from the animal creation, the same thing that happened in Genesis chapter 2. And just as Genesis 2 proceeds into Genesis 3 with the coming of the dragon serpent, the enemy, the devil, so also does Job 38 proceed very naturally to Job uh, 41, where we meet Leviathan. Or, uh, Leviathan, he is... Uh, has eyes like the dawn, who is king over all the sons of pride. We see that there is clearly a relationship between Genesis 2 to 3, Job 38 to 41. And through this process, Job learns more about God's character. He learns why God does the things that he does, and thus is given the ability to manage and rule more than he had the ability to rule at the beginning of the book. When you understand how God rules the world, you can rule the world yourself in a wise way. So that is what I think is going on, either in the mind of the serpent or in the mere providence of God. What's going on is that Eve is being asked to repeat back uh, the words of God so that she will grow in wisdom, so that she will grow in understanding of those words of God. We see how wisdom, which results from contemplation on the Torah, that's a point made throughout the Torah and indeed throughout Proverbs, is, is symbolized in the figure of a woman, Lady Wisdom. That's because protology is embodied in masculinity and eschatology is embodied in femininity. Now, masculinity and femininity are not the same thing as maleness and femaleness. Every human being, male and female alike, have both masculine and feminine characteristics. It is simply that in a corporeal way, 
male human beings have an accent on the masculine and female human beings have an accent on the feminine. But both have both masculine and feminine characteristics. Masculine, as uh, as C.S. Lewis would, uh, would say, and he uh, talks about at the end of Paralandra, uh, masculine and feminine are the general categories. Male and female are a specific mode in which those general categories are expressed. But masculinity is the initiation. It's the beginning. It's uh, the movement towards. A femininity is the reception and the, uh, the reciprocation. So the growth of the creation from its beginning to its glory is signified in the in the development from male to female. So at the beginning of the book of Revelation, you've got the bridegroom, Christ. At the end of the book of Re Revelation, you've got the bride, the city of God, the glory, who has the glory of God. And you have uh, in both Revelation 1 and in Revelation 21, a tenfold description of the bridegroom and the bride, which parallels blow for blow so that we see that the bride is who she is because she shares in that glory of her bridegroom. I believe it's in, in Revelation 1 and 21, though you would have to double check that. And it goes back to the tenfold description of bridegroom and bride that we see in the Song of Songs. So that's why it's the woman here who is being engaged, who is being engaged in conversation. We have to keep in mind that the husband is with her. Remember, he was the only one who had heard God speak directly. And we're told in Genesis 3 verse 6 that her husband was with her. So why is Adam not speaking up? This is why, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, the role of a uh, minister in the church is understood in terms of Adam's role relative to Eve. It was the woman who was deceived, not the man, uh, because the man wasn't deceived. He rebelled with a high hand. He knew better. Eve was led astray. It was a sin, but it wasn't as serious of a sin because she hadn't heard it directly, and she would have expected Adam to speak up. Adam presumably wanted to know what would happen. God had told him, if you eat of this, you are going to die, but he wants to see, okay, if Eve eats of this, is she going to die? And if she dies, I'll say, well, I didn't do it. I didn't eat it. And if she doesn't die, I'll know God is a liar. This is one of those manifestations of the delay of the parousia. So a person rebels against God, then they think that they've escaped without judgment. We read this in the Psalms a lot. Oh, God hasn't judged. And uh, the judgment is delayed so that they are able to see the consequences of their actions in and of themselves. And then God comes and he judges. And so the woman responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So this little phrase, neither shall you touch it, is a very important phrase. Now, some people have said Eve is wrong. She is adding to the word of God, and she shouldn't have added to the word of God. But I think this is a mistake, and I agree with James Jordan, who I've referred to many times here because he has a commentary on Genesis 2-4, to which is like a 200-page commentary. It's totally brilliant. Um, I recommend it to all of you. It's called Trees and Thorns. You can find it on wordmp3.com. Um, this is a wise extension of the principle. If you're not supposed to eat of the tree, you ought not touch it. This is a principle which is uh, ratified in the laws of the Torah. Those things which are unclean to eat are also unclean to touch. 
The spiritual principle here that underlies it is very straightforward, and it is just basic practical wisdom, which nevertheless we always want to ignore, which is if you are not supposed if, – if you are forbidden from doing something, then you should not put yourself in situations where you are going to be tempted to do it. You can see how this applies in very practical ways in terms of something like sexual morality. If you are not to have intimate relations with a woman, then you shouldn't put yourself alone with a woman uh, in the middle of the night. It's just good sense. Neither shall we touch it. So what James Jordan argues, and I think this is a reasonable uh, argument, uh, though it's not you know, absolutely 100% um, knocked down solid, is that the reason that the serpent then lies to her? Let's just read what he, what he has to say. After she says, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Remember, the eyes are the instrument of judgment. Uh, the king did good or evil in the sight of the Lord. And you will be as gods, language of the divine council, knowing good and evil. That is, you will be exalted to a position in the heavenly council. You will have the authority that God is keeping back for himself. We see that the devil is projecting onto God. The devil is the one who doesn't want to tutor mankind so that mankind will grow up in wisdom and eventually be capable of judging angels. The angels who were faithful to God take their joy in that. They were created for that purpose, and thus they have a special delight in that because any creature in realizing its purpose uh, has, in a conscious sense, delight, has joy over it. Now, when Eve says, neither shall you touch it, we see that man is indeed growing in wisdom. She has made a logical inference. She has been given a commandment from God. That commandment has gone down into her bones. She has meditated on it, and she has made a wise uh, inference from the principle of that commandment. Solomon does the same thing. Solomon is not given the exact blueprint for how to handle two women who both claim maternity to a particular child, but he is able to digest the wisdom that is in the Torah through the Spirit and make applications to uh, this given situation. So that is why it is a key phrase. We see also here the sacral language. I've said before that the reason that the biblical prophets do not often refer directly to Genesis 2 to 3 in the language of Genesis 2 to 3 is because the Bible is cumulative. Genesis 2 to 3 is expanded when it is restated in terms of the tabernacle in Leviticus 8 to 16. Leviticus 8 to 16, we've got the consecration of the tabernacle, which follows blow for blow. The creation of man, the planting of the garden, the creation of woman, and then the fall, which corresponds to the bringing of strange fire by Nadab and Abihu. And then we have Leviticus 11 to 15, which are the laws of uncleanness. And blow for blow, they follow out in order the curses on the serpent, the curses uh, uh, on uh, the woman, and the curses through the ground on man. And it expands the logic and the theology of this relatively short text with a great amount of detail in 
the context and the language of the sanctuary. So when the prophets refer to what's going on in Genesis 2 to 3, they do so through the lens and in the language of Leviticus. And then Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, that corresponds to the investiture of Adam and Eve with garments. That's what goes on in uh, that's what goes on in uh, Genesis chapter three. So, what's going on then throughout the rest of the scriptures in light of this? Why does the serpent want to corrupt the human family? Well, we've already gone into one reason for that. He's jealous. His role in the creation was to lead the program of tutoring the human family until it was prepared to receive the keys of the kingdom and exercise authority in its own right. Now, because that was the end for which he was created, had he followed in God's way, he would have achieved unspeakable delight. Every creature achieves delight in fulfilling the unique role which God has entrusted to it. If we had tried to fulfill the role of an angel, we would not achieve delight. But if an angel fulfills the role it was created for, it acquires delight. Every creature has a unique delight according to its unique nature, as expressed in the particular idioms of its hypostasis. We discussed how angels and men differ. God created angels as a host. He created men to gradually multiply and grow through time. Well, because the angels were created as a host, the way that their choices affect them is quite different from the way that our choices affect us. We are created in a complex way. That is, our bodies, which are proper to our nature, unify a wide variety of parts. The unification of the parts is such that each of them has a role to play intrinsic to the whole according to whose pattern they are unified. Nevertheless, each of the atoms which is taken up and harmonized in this larger system does have a nature which could be articulated on its own terms. The angels are not like this. They are what would be called simple. That means indivisible. Okay, so you can divide a human body. You can't divide an angel. Uh, it can't be divided in the same way. Now, what this means is that the relationship of the angelic host to their choices has a immediate all or nothing effect that is not true for human beings in their embodied state. We gradually are habituated in good or in evil, but angels are not gradually habituated in good or in evil. Think about it this way. When the devil and his angels rebelled against God, they did so in full vision of the glory of God. And it is in the glory of God that the potential for anything else to happen exists. That is, all circumstances exist in that glory in whose view they were created. Every possible uh, point of note, every uh, possible circumstance uh, was already in their direct view. They knew everything relevant to their decision. Because of that, they are fully and maximally culpable for their rebellion against God. That is why we say that their will is fixed in evil. 
because they had already taken into account everything that was possible to take into account. There was no ignorance mixed into their rebellion against God. They did so in the fullest of full knowledge. So their sin is absolutely mortal. Now, a human being who sins, there is almost always some ignorance mixed in with it, which reduces proportionately the degree of their culpability. Because of that, they still have room, so to speak, to repent, to turn and change their mind. That is why we say the devil and his angels, they're fixed in evil, they do not repent. Whereas human beings in their corporeal state do repent. Okay, they, can, uh, they can change their mind. Now, after death, traditionally it is said that human beings cannot repent. However, their disposition can be more and more fully realized after death. This gets into some more speculative theology, but it's been speculated on within the tradition. Uh, and we'll talk about that actually in the next slide, um, which I'm going to make the next video, which actually I'm going to make right now, but I'm going to upload it on a, uh, another day. Um, one of the reasons that the devil and his angels do their stuff by plotting against the human family is because they do not have bodies, which means they do not have the capacity to directly terrorize the creation, which is created in a corporeal fashion. I want you to think, for example, about the kinds of stuff that they do, okay, that the devil and his angels do. They can really spook people. You know, if they if they get if they start to infest a place, you know, they can do all sorts of spooky stuff. They make things float and you know, open and shut doors, and you know, it's spooky. But when you think of the degree to which these beings despise the human creature and they despise God, when you think of the kinds of stuff that they would very much like to do, in a way, it's kind of silly that, you know, these are beings who are a hundred times worse than the worst and most psychopathic serial killer, a thousand times worse. These are beings who would torture children all day if they could. And what can they do? open and shut doors, fling some, you know, some plates around? Why is it that what they'd like to do and what they actually do directly are so different? Well, I think it has to do with the nature of the body. They do not have the capacity to directly terrorize the creation without a body. They have to launder their intentions through human beings, which is why they are so obsessed with corrupting human beings, because human beings can directly terrorize the creation. And I think this explains the story of the Nephilim. Why is it that the acquisition of embodied forms is so central to their intentions? Because they don't need to launder their intentions through mankind anymore. They can directly terrorize creation once they do that. So what the devils desire is to destroy the human family because the original uh, motivation for their plot was jealousy. Uh, over the exalted state to which God intended to elevate man. And they wished to prevent that from occurring. One way to prevent that from occurring is by destroying humanity. But the way that they went about destroying humanity was by seeking to have God do their dirty work for them. We can see this in the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers, uh, Balak and Balaam are unable 
to curse Israel directly. So what do they do? They have the Moabite women go and corrupt and tempt the Israelite men so that a divine plague falls on Israel, so that God destroys those who are rebelling against him. Uh, and Balak, in fact, is executed uh, for this grievous sin. We're told in Numbers 25 that Israel played the harlot with Baal of Peor. Baal is the liturgical manifestation of the devil throughout the Old Testament. Baalzebub, Jesus identifies Satan as Baalzebub, is Baalzebub. We read again and again about the sons of Bel. Bel is a way of referring to uh, the devil, referring to Baal. Uh, very often this is called worthless, uh, worthless men, but literally it is the seed of Belial, the seed of the serpent. We actually see this kind of thing going on in other ancient literature. Consider the way that uh, the story of the flood is described in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, I just want to emphasize, and I've said this in many other places, and I've said it before, the idea that the that the story of the biblical flood is a Near Eastern story and that the biblical author was merely borrowing a common Near Eastern theme is absolute garbage because it is not a Near Eastern story. It is a traditional story which is found all over the world. So if, if the reason that these Near Eastern texts talk about a flood is uh, because there actually was one and there, it's a historical memory, well then the prediction would be that you find those traditions all across the world which in fact you do. And those stories are quite similar to the biblical story in many cases as well. Sometimes they're even more similar than the Near Eastern counterpart. I recommend you, you look at the Old World Indian flood story. You can look at some New World Indian flood stories. It talks about a bird being sent off at the end of the flood. Uh, it, it talks about the ark uh, and landing on a mountain, oftentimes a sacrifice at the end of the flood. So very interesting stuff. Anyway, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, one of the reasons for the flood is that the gods are attempting to destroy the human family. They despise humanity, and they're very upset when one of them steps out of line and saves humanity from absolute destruction. We can see here it's a kind of different perspective on the same thing. Satan in the Old Testament is part of this category of being who is identified as the gods. There is a war among the gods that is manifest in human affairs, in the affairs of the nations. In Ugarit, we read satanic propaganda. We read that Baal rebelled against the original lord of the heavenly council, uh, God Most High, El Elyon, and he did so successfully. He won the war. Now, that's a lie. But it's a very interesting kind of lie because we see the way in which satanic propaganda gets manifest in ancient literature. There are many instances of this uh, throughout ancient literature, not just in the Near East, but also outside the Near East. One interesting point here is we, we find uh, that, uh, you know, in the Near East, the number of gods in the divine council is enunciated as 70. Now, I think the reason that the number 70 is associated with the divine council, at least one of the reasons, is that the uh, gematria, the numerical value of the word for council, or so, it is 70. Um, and uh, we read in Deuteronomy 32 that God divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God. And I think probably the best way to read that is the number which signifies the sons of God. Uh, so we uh, in Genesis 10, we have 70 nations. Uh, we find in linguistics, you know, there are uh, 
there are different language families uh, which are very difficult to relate to one another, uh, though you can quite straightforwardly relate languages within a language family to each other. Uh, and it seems that there are around 70 language families. Now, what around means in this context would be like 50 to 100. Of course, it's very difficult to precisely reconstruct how many language families there originally were. But it's important to keep in mind that certain language families became very popular. So uh, Indo-European languages uh, uh, grew and expanded as the lingua franca of the great imperial uh, ages, such that you have a lot of language families, around 70, I think probably exactly 70 language families, but you only have a few which uh, continue to be uh, vibrant on a large scale. In any case, that is one of the major plot lines in the scriptures, that the devil is seeking to destroy the human family. We, uh, and he has a pattern, and this is the last thing I'll say on this video, he has a pattern in which he acts. Uh, the first thing that he seeks to do is to attack the seed. In the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, or rather attack the bride. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abimelech, or pardon me, Pharaoh uh, takes Sarai. Abram has gone into Egypt. He said, this is my sister. And it would have been expected that the king would have to negotiate with her brother if he wanted to marry her. We're told in Genesis 12, and I want to point out the specific language here, we're told that the Egyptians saw that Sarai was beautiful, that she was very beautiful. Now the phraseology here seems to echo the phrase used in Genesis 6, where the sons of God saw that the daughters of Adam were good. The word beautiful and the word good in Genesis 12 and Genesis 6 are not the same word, but the phrase is quite similar, and the word for saw is the same, and the context uh, conceptually uh, indicates a connection here. And the language of Genesis 6, saw that the daughters of Adam were good, echoes Eve's seeing that the tree was good. Now, it was good for what? To make mankind wise, to elevate mankind to a position of exalted authority. Why is it that the sons of God, these rebellious members of the divine council, wanted to make a marriage alliance with the daughters of Adam, well, it's because Adam, as a human being, was the one to whom authority had been promised. They wanted to enter into that royal family, so to speak, and thus acquire illegitimate authority to reign in terror, uh, tyrannically, over the creation. Well, what is it that Pharaoh wanted? Abram and Sarai were... Uh, at the very top of the social hierarchy. They were rich. They were aristocrats. They came from royal families. Uh, Abram Sarai is called uh, uh, princess. Her name means princess. And as James Jordan points out, uh, well, today you might call someone who's not a princess princess. In the ancient world, it meant you were a princess. Why is it that Pharaoh seeks a personal audience with Abram? Well, Abram in Genesis 14 has 318 men in his fighting force. You have to imagine that his camp was probably several thousand men. By the time of Jacob, it had probably reached something like 10,000 men. It's important to keep in mind, these are not just nomads which are going from place to place. They have very large um, uh, groups that are going with them. So Pharaoh, one of the reasons that he wanted Sarai, presumably, 
was to increase the authority of his royal house. And humanity is the bride of God. We see this throughout the prophets. Israel is called Zion, and Zion is the bride, daughter Zion. Ideal, perfected humanity is perfected in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So the first thing the devil does in his scheming is to attack the bride. Abram seeks to protect his bride by the use of legitimate deception. Uh, and it wasn't complete deception because she was indeed his half-sister. That wasn't, that wasn't forbidden until Sinai. Uh, Pharaoh takes her anyway, shows the kind of person that he is. He blames the righteous. He blames Abram. He says, oh, why didn't you tell me? Well, if he had told him, Abram would have been would have put his own life uh, uh, in danger and wouldn't have gained anything for his bride. So that's the first move. Then, with that having failed, the devil seeks to corrupt the people of God. We see this in Genesis 16. Uh, in Genesis 16, what happens is that Sarah, sure, Sarai rather, tells Abram to uh, take Hagar as his wife. And he does. He listened to the voice of his wife. That's a quotation of Genesis 3, where Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Now, in both cases, it is the man to whom the commandment was directly given, keep that in mind, it's true in both cases, uh, who is held more responsible. Uh, it is a sin of ignorance more than it is a sin of high hand in Genesis 16 on Sarai's part, and it is a more culpable sin for Abram. But that's beside really the main point, which is that what's going on is the devil is seeking to corrupt Abraham's family. Abram seeks to produce a seed without the direct intervention and sovereignty of God. And that's then in Genesis chapter 17. We see God says Ishmael is not the covenant son, though Ishmael is a righteous Gentile. Now, this is not a one-to-one -one equivalence with the sin of Adam. Abram, uh, the sin of Abram here isn't as serious as the rebellion of Adam. Nevertheless, we see the pattern being manifest. And then finally, Satan attempts to attack the bride, then he attempts to corrupt the people, and then he attempts to attack the seed. In Genesis chapter 20, uh, we have the story of Abimelech and Abraham and Sarah, which in many ways resembles the story of Pharaoh, Abraham, and Sarah in Genesis 20. But the major focus of Genesis 20 is not so much the bride as it is the seed. That is the context, and it is what is explicitly called attention to after Abraham makes intercession for the house of Abimelech. Uh, this is what it says, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 17, Abraham uh, prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and his female slaves that they bore children. So we have the, uh, the birth of the seed going on here. We see the same thing in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Now, I think this refers to stuff that goes on in the book of Acts, but I'm not going to get into that right now because I just want to keep, uh, keep our eye on the central point. Uh, in Revelation chapter 12, the same threefold pattern occurs. We have uh, in uh, chapter 12, verse 13, 
When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So the woman he is here being attacked. The woman then flees. She escapes. Then in uh, verse 15, this is the attempt to corrupt the bride. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. So poisoned water comes forth from his mouth. But the land came to the help of the woman, and the land opened his mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So he's failed in attempting to attack the bride. He's failed in attempting to poison the bride. Now verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her seed and those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So we've got he attacks the bride, corrupts the bride, attacks the seed. Same threefold pattern. And this we also see in Christian history. Let's consider what goes on in the 4th century AD. 4th century AD. We begin with the Diocletianic persecutions. We have a direct attack by the devil on the church. Uh, some people often talk about the devil. You know, he's very crafty, you know, um, you know like he's a Machiavellian master. And maybe in one sense that true, that's true. But we should also keep in mind that there's another sense in which he's quite foolish. Why does he keep making the same mistakes again and again? Why does he keep attacking and having the church persecuted? It doesn't work. It only works to the advantage of Christ and his kingdom. Why does he keep doing it? Because he can't help himself. Because he is the embodiment, in one sense, of folly. And then after Diocletianic persecutions, well, what do you know? The church comes to reign. The emperor himself bends the knee to Jesus Christ as king of kings. What happens then? Well, we have the Arian crisis. This is the attempt by the devil to corrupt the people of God, to corrupt the bride uh, with heresy. Just as in the apostolic age, we had first the persecution of the church uh, in the early part of Acts. They flee from Jerusalem. Well, then Judaizing heresy comes out. And then finally, you have the persecution of the emperor Nero which is the second generation of Christians, same threefold pattern. Uh, and after the Arian crisis, you have Julian the Apostate. Julian the Apostate attempts to co-opt the institutions of the empire to uh, re-inculcate paganism into the minds of the next generation of Romans who were had been baptized. He attempts to prevent Christians from holding positions of authority in the schools. He attempts to prevent them from teaching the classical tradition. Uh, and of course, he fails and his life reportedly ends with thou hast conquered Galilean. So that threefold pattern repeats again and again and again. And we see that the entirety of history up to this point is the theater in which God declares his own name. And it is a front for the great war between Christ and the devil, where Christ now rides out on his white horse and assaults the gates of Hades and knocks it down. He has opened new fronts in the war in the past century. And it is Christ who is gaining ground and not the enemy. We always have to be careful about becoming myopic about what's going on in our own backyard and keep in mind that Christianity globally is spreading far more than it's receding in the Western world. And I think even in the Western world, you are seeing a resurgence, especially among young people, of a search for something uh, that provides actual, genuine meaning. And that's Christ, above all. Uh, secularism will not win. It cannot win. It simply does not have the staying power. Okay, so uh, what I'm going to do 
is I am going to upload this video and immediately after hitting the stop button, I am going to make the next video in the series, but I'm going to schedule it for being uploaded, uh, I believe tomorrow or the next day, but it's going to be made. Um, so I look forward to seeing you there and I hope you are getting something out of this. Thank you.